just like in residential real estate, you have agents in commercial real estate, you have commercial brokers and they list and sell and they're, they're full-time gigas to go out and find owners that are looking to sell apartment complexes and list them. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey, everybody. It's Sarah Larby. Welcome back to another episode of Where Should I Invest? Today, my guest is David Toupin who is a real estate investor in the U.S. and has been doing some amazing things. So really excited about this podcast as well. I know I say this a lot, but they're all exciting. They're all exciting, guys, because it's just so many different pieces of information and insights and learn to pick and choose which ones apply to you. Not all of the content sometimes when I'm interviewing investors from different parts of the world may apply, but I try as much as possible to to relate it back to Canadian content because when I look at the listeners, you guys are, I would say like 85% of people that listen to this are Canadians. And a lot of them, I mean, really, ultimately, I, I some of you guys are listening from Ontario, some of you from BC, Montreal. I mean, it actually covers pretty much the whole Canadian country, which is really cool. And I still do have some others and other people listening from different countries. And I, I want to say thank you to everyone. But I also really want to make sure that I share what's Canadianized and what's not Canadianized as much as possible so that we know what applies here in Canada as we looking for deals and opportunities. But that's not to say that you can't invest and be really successful even in another country such as the US. And David is just incredible. He's done uh, an amazing job and he's going to tell you a little bit about his story. So let me know if you are enjoying the podcast by leaving a rating and review or sending me an email. If you have any questions about anything at all, send me an email, sarah at sarahlarby.com. You can add me on Instagram, reach out to me there, which is investor Sarah Larby. And you can also check out my website, sarahlarby.com. And on the website, there's actually a few things that you guys can download for free. One is a market fundamentals checklist. So it tells you what I look for when I look at a new markets in terms of anything from transportation to population, etc. And so that's all listed there. And also some of the tenant screening procedures that I do. So happy to share those. Those are free. And then there's also different things that you can sign up for, such as coaching or different classes. So lots of uh, great information. I definitely want to share as much as I can and help you guys also be successful and create that wealth and create that freedom. Because ultimately, if you're listening to this, my guess is that you don't want to be working necessarily until you're 65 unless you love your job, which is okay. But at the end of the day, it's about the freedom. It's about the time that you get to choose what you want to do, where you want to go, who you want to hang out with. And you're not stuck to that clock of having to check in and check out somewhere. But if you want to do anything and go somewhere because it's too cold here right now, it's cold, (laughs) then why not? Right. And if you want to do that in 10 years rather than 30 years, why not? And a real estate to me has allowed me to create that freedom. And I'm pretty close to being able to figure that 
you know, maybe if I want that freedom now or in a year from now or in two years from now, it's actually pretty achievable. And I've been doing this for about six years now. So it's not going to be a year. It's not going to be a get rich fast, but you can do it. And it's about time in the market, not timing it. But I will tell you that I look back at it and all the sacrifices are 100% worth it. And everything that I've learned and all the headaches and everything like that, 100% worth it. And I hope you follow me on this journey. And if you're stuck, well, reach out and maybe I can help you and help you with some insights or guide you towards trying to figure out how to get to that next step. So guys, I hope you like this podcast episode and uh, looking forward to hearing from you. David, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, I'm great, Sarah. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. So where are you calling in from today? I am in Baltimore on a short weekend trip at a real estate conference. And thanks for taking this Sunday morning to hang out and chat. My pleasure. I'm uh, super excited now. I know. I think we connected on Instagram. I was super impressed with your page and everything that you've been doing so far. Can you let the listeners or tell the listeners a little bit about what you are doing and what your current strategy is? Yeah, yeah. So gosh, I started investing three years ago. Uh, I was in college, my junior going on senior year. And I had read a book, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And for me, that was like, man, this just makes sense. I need to do real estate. So I jumped right in. I started off wholesaling and flipping houses, single family, did it for about five or six months. I really didn't have a lot of money at all. I was kind of a broke college student, but I wanted to buy apartments. I wanted to get into buying bigger deals, commercial and apartments. And so I figured out a way to essentially raise money from investors and buy larger properties, apartment buildings. I give them a return on their money and I get a piece of sweat equity in the deal. I mean, we call that kind of like a syndication is what it's called. And so I started doing that. I bought my first deal as a 12 unit property in Michigan where I grew up. And uh, I just kept going from there. And and I've bought in the past three years a little over 520 apartments. And I'm doing some commercial developments right now. That's just super impressive. So three years and 500 Mm -hmm. plus units. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So like people yep. are probably scratching their heads. And I know <laughs> this is, so you're in the U S. Mm-hmm. Yep. I live in Texas. So I moved from Michigan to Texas. So now I kind of buy all over Texas mainly. Uh, but yeah. Wow. So your first one was 12 units. So how did you get financing? How did you run the numbers on that? Like, what does that even, cause a lot of people start smaller but you just went sure. right in and you would decide to do a 12 unit. That's, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never owned a single family rental. I just, when I started reading and studying about it and it just made sense. Economies of scale. I think it's safer. Uh, the more units you have, the more, I think the less risk you have, in my opinion, I think some people think of it opposite, you know, the more money, the more of a loan, the more risk, but I think of it a little opposite. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't able to get a loan on my own. Uh, I wasn't able to, I didn't have the money to put up to buy it. So what I did was I brought somebody in that signed on a loan. I gave him a piece, of, a little piece of equity in the deal for doing that. And then I brought in a couple investors that put up the down payment and the money for renovations. Uh, and, we, you know, we have an operating agreement that we put together uh, that kind of structures, you know, their limited partners. I'm the managing partner. I kind of make decisions. I run the deal. I operate it. But, you know, they might get 70% of the equity in it for putting the money up. And then I get 30% of the equity in it for putting it up. And so it kind of structured deals like that. They get a good return on their money. I'll fix it up, raise the rents, improve the value of it, and then sell it in the period of three to five years. That the 12 unit, I, I ended up selling like a year and a half. Uh, we did well on it. So 
So that's really interesting. How did you convince these people to invest with (laughs) you on your first deal? (laughs) You know, I ask myself that all the time because (laughs) I can imagine a 20, I was 20, going on 21 year old kid going to people asking for 25, 50, $100,000 with no track record. Certainly wasn't easy. I think what really helped is I'm a big numbers person and I did some internships in like investment banking and all that. And I got really good with numbers and I started just running numbers on a lot of deals, analyzing them, underwriting them, learning how they operate and how the financial side of things works. And so if if I understand that really well, I can explain that to an investor, simplify it for them and and just show them, you know, a plan. I'll I'll send over what my plan is and what I'm going to do, how much money I'm going to put in to raise the rents, you know, X amount and how I can get the net operating income on the property up and that raises the value of the property. So, you know, I just show them a plan and most of them said no, but the 5% that said yes were enough for me to get it done and, and start building that track record. Where should I invest with your host, Sarah Larvey? We'll be right back. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick moment and pause the podcast interview here because I wanted to introduce you to Dahlia Barsoom of Streetwise Mortgages. I am a big believer, as you guys probably have heard, work with a mortgage broker. They are going to help you scale. And when I was first growing in real estate investing and looking to buying my second property and my third property, I was going directly to the bank then. I hadn't met Dahlia yet. And I actually was hitting a roadblock when it came to financing because the bank started asking me for 25% as the down payment. And then for my third property, they wanted 35%. And it was really, really hard for me to A, understand why it was creeping up like that. And B, I didn't have 35% to put down. I had 20%. And luckily, I actually met Dahlia at that point in time. And Dahlia is actually an investor herself, and she's works with many, many investors. And she knows all the pitfalls and the barriers that normally come up with dealing directly with a bank and all the different lenders. And Dahlia was actually able to not just find me proper alternatives, but I've got nine properties now, and I'm still able to get financing with A-lenders, and it allows me to be able to scale up without hitting the financing wall. And so she's been a tremendous help. So the other thing I really, really enjoy is Dahlia also does a free goals analysis. So if you go to either my website or her website, streetwisemortgages.com, mention the podcast and ask for the free goals analysis, it was a game changer for me. And it allowed me to actually understand what I needed to do, how many properties I was going to get because of the cash flow that I was looking for. If you guys wanted to reach out to Dahlia, you can reach out to her by email, which is info at streetwisemortgages.com, or you can actually reach out to her on the website at streetwisemortgages.com, and then just go to the contact section. And you can also call her at 1-800-208-208. 6255. Thanks for listening and back to the show. Back to the show. Where should I invest? Real estate investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. So were were these originally people that you knew that you went to ask for financing and and money with? No. Well, uh, I somewhat knew them. It was, you know, I call it like the friends and family category. 
more friends than family. Didn't have any family in them. But uh, they're just people I networked with. I think the first couple of deals, mainly, you know, I had somebody that owned a small insurance agency. They had a couple of people that flipped houses locally that had $25,000, $50,000 extra that they could put into a, a deal passively. And maybe, I think I had maybe one doctor that put up $50,000. Uh, and so, you know, I just kind of pull the money together from a group of investors and they get a return on their money. And, you know, I get a piece of equity in the deal for doing that. Yeah, no, it is pretty awesome. So did you find the property first? Yes. Under an off market? Was it off market? Uh, it was on market with the broker, actually. Yeah. Okay. And I do both. I like on and off market. I prefer off market, but this one happened to be on market. Yep. Okay. So did you negotiate it prior to going out and getting the funds so that you can ensure that it is a good deal and be like, this is what I got. Now you want to invest because here is what the numbers do look like. Yeah, no, that's a great question. A lot of people ask that, like, do you raise the money first? Do you find a deal first. I always find a deal first. And my philosophy is if you have a good deal, it shouldn't be difficult to raise the money. And I went out and found the deal. And then what I can do is kind of package that, put together an, what I call an OM or an offering memorandum. And it just explains, like I was saying, uh, all the, the details of the deal, the return, expected returns and whatnot. And then I'll go out and, to talk to the investors. But I'm always networking. And, you know, like I'm at an event this weekend in Baltimore. I'm networking with people that could be potential investors, telling them what I do, explaining how the process works so that when I do have a deal, they're ready. Hmm. That's, that's amazing. Congrats yeah. on all your successes. So <laughs> Thank you. Inspiring to, Thank you very to much. See. You've scaled so quickly and it sounds like you've got some great deals. So you decided to do the syndication piece and it, it's probably very complex for some people that are looking at like single families and getting in that market. And here you are, you're doing syndications. Like, <laughs> How did you learn everything you needed to learn to do it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I first learned about it on podcasts. Apartments in general, there are a lot of books that you can read. You know, there's a book from my friend Brian Murray called Crushing It in Apartments and Commercial Real Estate. That's a great one. I think a guy named Joe Fairless just came out with a book called The Best Ever Syndication Book. And that explains kind of start to finish how to do it. A friend of mine, Rod Cleef, runs a great podcast too. And they talk all about syndications. And so I learned from a couple different people, but then the majority of it, I just dove in head first and kind of figured it out along the way and made mistakes and learned how not to raise money, learned what kind of deal not to buy. And, you know, you just kind of figure it out. I'm happy to share some of those yeah, failures please, and mistakes. Please do. Let's, let's talk about like, just even just syndication. Like, what do we need to know? How do you, you know, if somebody that's listening is saying, this sounds really cool, I want to do it too. And, you know, sure. considering that this, a lot of my listeners are Canadian, so some, some of the stuff will apply, some of it may not. But let's just say in your case, like how, how does it work? Yeah. So essentially what a syndication is, is I'm putting together a deal with the property, figure out how much money we need to raise. Let's say we're buying a hundred unit property or let's, let's say we're buying a 10 unit property and you need a hundred thousand dollars to buy it. I'm going to put together some documents. We put together an operating agreement and another document called a PPM or private placement memorandum. And the SEC, a Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, and that's why I don't know if this is the same for Canada or not, but uh, in the US, the SEC came up with a way to allow us to do this because essentially we're selling shares in the deal to our investors and it's a passive investment. And so the SEC said, well, it seems like you guys are selling securities and you're not brokers. So you technically can't sell it like a, you know, you would a stock. So they came up with an exemption that allows us to do this. 
And you can, you know, your listeners can research this online. It's Regulation D, 506B and 506C. And there's these two exemptions that allow us to raise money passively from investors. And so there's all this verbiage that goes into these documents that I mentioned, the PPM and the operating agreement. And it just outlines what everyone's role is, you know, so it'll have the investors, let's say there's different classes. So there'll be class A, uh, those are the investors. What kind of returns do they get? Maybe they get uh, for putting their money in 8% base rate of return or a preferred return, and they get 50% of the profits over that. And then I might be class B and I get 50% of the profits after they get their, their 8% return. And so these documents kind of outline that. And so I put that into the offering memorandum where I share it with investors and, you know, they get kind of to see the breakdown of how all that works. I'll share the documents, they sign on it. They're a part owner, they're a passive investor. And then my role, which is outlined in those documents as well as managing, making decisions on when we sell, refinance, what renovations to do, daily operations and all that. And then kind of just take it through the the plan that we outline up front and we'll either hold for cash flow or fix it up, approve it and sell it. So yeah, kind of it process. sounds like there's there's a lot of similarities with a syndication piece. Like I'm okay. sure like some of the legal and tax stuff and all of that piece just like definitely consult with with absolutely absolutely appropriate professionals. Yep. But you know, people do raise money and put them in syndications here. Okay. Yeah. It's, it sounds it sounds similar, but like again, I'm not an expert in this field and I, I won't pretend to be. I mean, you're the expert in this. <laughs> So it's, it is quite interesting. It's now, essentially a fund. I, um, I guess it would be a really easy way to put it. Or, or it's like a JV, but you've got a bunch of passive investors coming in and pooling money together, you know, to help you buy property. Yeah. And I think there are some things to like look out for just from making sure that you've talked to the person before or that you know them or you have some kind of connection. So I think there are some, exactly. some things that you just have to be careful because you can't just like be like oh yeah this is like you can't say i'm going to guarantee you 10 percent or whatever because you can actually get in a lot of trouble like so exactly. there's a lot of rules you're very to right really make sure absolutely. <laughs> absolutely yeah you need to be careful right and so as you see there's there's rules that you kind of have to follow in terms of having a pre-existing relationship with investors depending on like i mentioned there's 506b and 506c so 506 there's one or two main differences. 506B, I could raise money from anybody, accredited and non-accredited investors, as long as they're sophisticated. And what accredited means is either you have a million dollar net worth, uh, or you make, I think, $200,000 a year if you're single or 300000 jointly if you're married. And you know, if you hit those, there's a couple other qualifications you could look up, but those that would mean you're accredited if you meet that. And if you don't, you're technically a non-accredited or sophisticated investor. So 506B, I can raise money from accredited and non-accredited. You need to have a pre-existing relationship, but I can't openly advertise the deal. I can only share the deal once I have a relationship with you as an investor. So all the investors I currently know now, I could share the deal with. I can't go post it on Facebook with a 506B, but you also have the convenience of, I don't need to raise from just accredited investors. 506C, on the other hand, you can only raise from accredited investors, uh, which is they're harder to find, However, I can openly advertise the deal now. I can go literally post on Facebook, mass email blasts, all that stuff. So you kind of have to strategize and pick like what, you know, what, what's my pool of investors like for this specific deal? And, you know, which, how should I set it up? Who am I going to raise money from? Do I want to advertise it? Oh, if I do, I can't raise from, you know, non-accredited. So 
there's all these things and I hope it's not too confusing, but there's all these things that go into it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely do your research and if the listeners want to reach out to you, there'll be some time at the end to to give them that information as well. I would just say, keep in mind, Canada still will have some differences than the US, but like, it sounds like there are similarities that, that you're mentioning that will apply here as well. So Okay. So you're buying these properties. You're essentially responsible for ensuring that it's mm-hmm. successful. And so like, how do you analyze your numbers? How, like what, talk to us about some of the processes and procedures that you put in place in order to take care of these 500. Sure. Units. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the first side is, you know, acquisitions. We're always talking to brokers, just like in residential real estate, you have agents in commercial real estate, you have commercial brokers and they list and sell and they're their full-time gig is to go out and find owners that are looking to sell apartment complexes and list them. And so we have good relationships with a lot of those. And then also we target off-market, almost like you would do a lot of people wholesale in Canada too, like flipping or wholesaling. Not as not as much okay. as the US, but there are some successful okay. wholesalers. They're just the privacy laws. We don't have access to pulling all the same mm, type of lists okay. as easily as you guys. So it, it's gotcha. different. I mean, it is a something that does happen. Like there are a handful of wholesalers, but I would say like gotcha. a okay. <laughs> in comparison to like, I don't know, like I feel like in the U S oh it's gosh. like a diamond. Yeah, totally is. <laughs> so that's a good point. Yeah. And because we have the ability to pull these lists, just like a lot of people do in single family space, they mail owners. I mail apartment owners. So we send out a couple hundred mailers each week to owners saying, Hey, I see you own this property. Are you interested in selling? They are. They'll give us a call and we'll, you know, the goal is to request and, and get financial documents from them rent roll as uh, the first document. And that's the one that, you know, breaks down all the units in the property, how many apartments there are, uh, what's the tenant's name, what type of unit, what's the square footage, and what's the current rental rate, and a couple other things. So that that allows us to see kind of what average rents they're currently getting, how much are they bringing in a month type of thing, what's their occupancy. And then we also ask for another document called a T12 or a trailing 12 financial statement. And that breaks down month by month, the past 12 months from whenever you are, and what their income was, what their you know, vacancy loss was, what utility reimbursement costs, late fees they collected. And then it would break down all their expenses too, like repairs and maintenance, contract services, payroll, if you have a big enough property to have employees, taxes, all that stuff. So we'll take these numbers and we'll input them into an calculator, which I've, I've built one and I have one for free on my website if any of your listeners want to download it. And so we'll input this information and we'll put in our projected rents. Where do we think we can, can we put $5,000 into this two bedroom unit, update the fixtures, countertop, cabinet doors, vinyl plank flooring, new appliances. And can we get the rent from 750 to 925 or something like that, right? And so we input all this information mm-hmm. and see how we can improve the property, raise the income, and, and essentially it helps you figure out what price to pay. So we'll back into purchase price and make an offer from there. How many offers do you make for how many are accepted? Good question. <laughs> this year, a lot. Uh, I've looked at, I think a month ago, our numbers were like, we looked at over 400 deals on the high level on the surface. We analyzed, so we actually ran numbers on like 175. And I made, I made 40 offers, 50 offers, and we bought three properties. Okay. So we're looking at over 100 to one. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, you know, it just goes to show you, you've got it. You just have to be actively looking and, oh, yeah. you know, just keep making offers. And at some point things will, uh, things will happen. Now yeah. your properties are located in Michigan and Texas, both. Uh, so I sold everything in Michigan before I moved to Texas and I have some, some in Atlanta. I have one in Atlanta. 
And then I have a couple throughout Texas. So, okay. So like for a lot of the listeners, let's just say you're in Ontario. Mm -hmm. When we buy something, we actually, it's, it's harder to kick out the tenants because in order to raise rents, you actually are capped. So, and I don't think it's like this in Texas, but like we can only raise rents in this case, 2.2%. Last year it was 1.8% a year. In the whole city? In all the province of Ontario. all the province of Ontario. Okay. Yeah. And then there's other provinces as well where it's like that. So, so when you're looking at a building, what we often have to do is cash for keys. You know, if somebody's paying and want to renovate the unit, even if you want to renovate it in Ontario, they technically can come back and have the first right of refusal at the same price that they were paying before. So you really actually have to get them out. (laughs) And oftentimes it's like literally paying them to leave. And I don't think it's the same in Texas. Am I correct? Mm -mm. Yeah. There's no uh, rent control in Texas. California has some areas where it's like that and New York too. So when you go in, you're able to just say, okay, we're raising rents 50 bucks and take it or leave. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So that's probably a lot more convenient than having the rent control that would make it difficult for us because we can literally go in and uh, let's say we have a very highly occupied property and we want to go in and renovate 50 out of the hundred units. We can just start raising rents, you know, 150 bucks. Uh, on renewals and some people will accept it and then a lot of people will end up leaving and that allows us to renovate the units we'll get them in renovate the unit and then up the rent you know 250 bucks something like that so yeah we can we can raise it to whatever level nice what's the vacancy rate in texas mm, average probably six percent average okay. yeah we're most of our properties um i've one in fort worth right now i think that last i checked it was at 94 percent, 95 percent Okay. What about just like Texas as a whole when it comes to rent, like vacancy totals? Do you have an idea? Uh, it's normally around that, you know, in between four and 7%, okay. depending on the market you're in. Yeah. Some markets might be a little higher, uh, but most primary cities, it's going to be probably in that 5 to 6% range. Yeah. So I think that's like the other big difference, right? Is like we have a housing shortage issue where a lot of the areas, it's like under 1% vacancy. So like our tenants, A, they wow. don't want to leave because if they leave, then they're not going to find something else. And then mm-hmm. the market rents increase so go much every year because of the rent control and because of the shortage issue that, you know, like for me, I want my tenants gone in like two to five years. Like if a tenant's like, I want to be here like forever in my forever home. I'm like, no, no, sorry. I can't, I can't. <laughs> Cause that's, no, that's, I that's crazy. So yeah. You really have to select. Uh, the right tenants so they turn over you you want more turnover which is really interesting we, we want less turnover right because we can raise the rents but yeah that's i mean there's a lot of every market's different and there's a lot of interesting factors you have you're gonna have to take into account when you're analyzing a deal for example you might not in if you're doing it in ontario, ontario you're not going to be able to project this high rent growth annually because yep. of that yeah no absolutely so, so can you give me an example of like what the financials look like and, and maybe on one of the last three properties that you bought, what you bought it for, what you did, the rent, like how much it costs to renovate, the refi sure. amount and all that good stuff? Yeah. So um, I bought a 96 unit in Michigan. I actually house hacked this deal. I bought it and then moved on site and I self-managed it. Um, <laughs> and uh, which is, I wouldn't do it again. It was in the sea area, but it was a good experience. Um and I bought it for 4.2 million. It's about it's about 43,000 a unit. The rents on average, there were half one bedrooms, half twos. One bedrooms were 650 on average. Two bedrooms were 750 on average when we bought it. The oh gosh, like gross income was probably in like the 750 to 800 thousand dollar range. 
expenses were 400,000. I guess it would probably help to a little bit. Do you want me to explain how the financials work, like NOI and all that stuff? Okay. Sure. Yeah. So in commercial real estate, in commercial real estate, uh, the value of the property is very different. It's determined very differently than in residential. Residential, you can look at comps and you can say, okay, there's a three bed, two bath in this neighborhood. It's probably worth a similar amount to three bed, two bath in a close by neighborhood, as long as it's got the same level of renovation, for example, similar size. In commercial real estate, the value is directly based on, almost directly based on a factor called the net operating income. And it's very simple. Net operating income is just all your gross income, so all the money you brought in, minus all your expenses. And the only thing that's not included in expenses is debt. So if you have a loan, it's not included. So everything else, insurance, taxes, repairs and maintenance, payroll, that's all included. And so you said income minus expenses equals NOI. And we take your NOI and almost like you value a business, you know, you might sell a tech company at a 20 multiple on, you know, their, their revenue. It's the same kind of thing. There's a factor in commercial real estate called a cap rate or capitalization rate, and it's a percentage, and every market's different. The higher the demand in an area, the hotter an area, the lower the cap rate. So LA might be at a 4% cap rate because things are extremely pricey, whereas in Detroit, you might be at an 8% cap rate because you know it's not as desirable. Right. So you take the NOI, you divide it by the cap rate, and that becomes the value of the property. So I bought this, I'll do some quick calculations, the, the uh, NOI was 325000 and I bought it for $4.2 million. So that's a 7.7% cap rate that I bought it at. And now the cool part about that is my goal is to raise that 325000 NOI as high as I can and sell it at a similar cap rate, and that'll increase the value. So I brought it up from three hundred twenty-five to four hundred. let's say, I think it's 428000 that you could see was the NOI on our T12. Again, that's a financial document. And the area actually improved. So cap rates went down. They were probably seven and a half when I bought it. And then when I sold it, uh, they were closer to six and a half. So if I brought it up from 325 to 425,000, and I take 425,000 divided by 6.5%, the value is now 6.5 million. And so I bought for 4.2, a year and a half later, sold it for 6.7 million. That's awesome. Yeah. What did you do other than raise the rents? Like what are some of the things like somebody that's listening to this and be like, Oh wow, how did he raise it? Like what did you do to increase the rents? And and your calculations, by the way, they're essentially the same as we do here when we look at multifamily commercial and stuff like that. But what are some things like as you're figuring out how to raise this and it's awesome that the cap rates obviously got better for you. Yeah. yeah. How do you increase your rents and how do you decrease your expenses? Yeah. Great question. So uh, this property definitely had a decent amount of deferred maintenance. One owner, he had it since he built it 40 years ago. It had old T111 or you know wooden siding that was rotting. So we replaced that with all vinyl siding. Vinyl. And we did a lot of work to the parking lot, a new entrance sign, renovated the leasing office, trimmed a lot of the trees and did some new landscaping updates. So all that doesn't directly impact dollar for dollar rents, but it does make an overall impact on like who you attract to the property. And yes, people will pay higher rents for a property that's well kept and nicer. But the money that really directly impacts it is what we put into uh, the individual units. So for example, I think we spent on average about four to 5,000 to renovate each unit with new countertops, a vanity, vinyl flooring, you know, two-tone paint and new fixtures uh, and appliances. And so 
Uh, we were able to get one bedrooms from six fifty a month on average. Without renovating them, we got them up to seven fifty, so hundred bucks without even having to touch it. And if we renovated it, we got some of them up to like nine hundred, nine twenty five. So it was huge rent increases, almost two hundred fifty, two hundred seventy five dollars. The two bedrooms we got from seven fifty up to, you know, spend a little bit more, five to six thousand on a unit, but. Uh, we got those from 750 up to, gosh, I got one to 1150. That's 400 dollar increase. A lot of them we got to 1,000, 1,050, 1,100. So wow. huge increases, and that all plays into increasing the NOI and the value of the property. Yeah. So, so your your goal is, I think, to sell them. Is that what the goal is in the long run? Yeah, we normally do like a three to five year hold because most of our investors they want to see their money kind of turn back around. We've been doing longer and longer term deals as the market has gotten so hot. We want to make sure we're safe. So we tell investors, hey, look, we're buying right now at the top of the market. We're still trying to get the best prices possible, but we're putting on 10-year loans, you know, loans with 10-year term, just in case the market dips in the next couple of years and we have to hold it long term. So, but we project normally a five-year sale and it, it really depends on the deal though. Hmm. Now, is the goal ever to to refinance and then just pay off your investors so you can hold it yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great strategy. So I think that's best case scenario. If you could go in, let's wrap out the value of this from 4.2 million up to seven and a half million. I could refi out six, pay investors, get them a profit. And maybe that split, instead of being a 70-30, they, maybe they stay in the deal at a 50-50 now. Or, and so my equity goes up a lot now that they have their money back. Or we might, you know, if you can get them enough profit, you buy them out of the deal entirely and you own it on your own. And, and you didn't, you know, for example, on that deal, I didn't have to put any money into it because I didn't have any money <laughs> at the time. Right. But, uh, so how does the financing work? Like, is, Are the investors putting all the money and then that's how it's getting financed? Or are you going to any kind of bank as well? Yeah, so we use, we get a loan on all the properties. We normally do, it's 75 to 80% loan to value. If it's a semi-stabilized property, if it's above 90% occupancy, we'll go to an agency lender. And that's like your, if you're in the US, your FHA, uh, your Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac type of loans, government-sponsored loans and really low interest rates, 30-year amortization, 10-year term, couple years interest only. Our rates are like four and a half right now. So they're really, really good. If it's less stabilized, we'll do a construction loan or a bridge loan. They're short term, maybe two or three year loan, but they'll wrap in renovation costs into it. So we, less money out of pocket, you know, little higher interest rate. And then we have to refi within, you know, once you add the value and improve the property. So, okay. yeah. and then the rest of the money comes from the investors. Yeah. And, and now I, now that I'm able to, I invest in all of my deals alongside nice. investors. All right. That's, that's pretty cool. So, so when you're preparing a property to sit like for a sale, what type of buyers are you seeing? The ones that want to be more passive that everything is now done or I'm just curious to see who you're selling to. Yeah, that is, you asked a really good question. So we, our strategy has been to go into a property that has been kind of untouched for a while, renovate uh, the exterior, make it look really nice, renovate 50% of the units prove that we could put X amount of dollars per unit and get X amount of increase and then sell it with some meat on the bone. Uh, you know, there's 50% of the units left to be renovated. And so we've now, we can now go out to the market and say, Hey, we proved that we can spend $5,000 and get a $250 rent increase. 
you can go do the same. And so it's worked really well for us. And then our deals sell pretty quickly when we've done that model. If we hold long term, I'm like, I'm doing 136 unit right now in Fort Worth and we're renovating 100% of the units, but we're going to hold that for five to maybe seven or 10 years. And so, okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. That makes sense to leave some meat on the bone. And that's probably why yeah. it's still very attractive for a lot of investors. Cause mm-hmm. so if I look at something and I'm like, okay, what kind of improvements can I do? The rent's already super at market mm-hmm. and all the expenses have been reduced. Like what's yeah. left for me to exactly. make some profit for very, very long term. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Cause that is actually a very interesting concept. You'll do half of it. You'll prove that it makes sense. And then the other piece is they're probably not going to ask you for 12 months financials because you're just doing enough to prove it to them. So even if you hold it for a year and a half, you might not have that 12 months of new financials. Yeah, you might don't. Exactly. Exactly. You might show them that and it, it's not fully stabilized, a full 12 months of stabilization, but they'll do, you know, what's called a, they'll annualize it using the T3. So look at the past three months now that it's really improved and you can see a trend of upward moving income and they'll just annualize that out uh, and, and project the value. So yeah. So you say we a few times. Who do you have on your team? Uh, so in, in my company, Obsidian Capital, I have uh, my business partner, Glenn Gonzalez. Uh, he's also based in Austin, Texas. I have Alex, director of operations. Uh, Jason, he's our director of acquisitions. He uh, underwrites all the deals, you know, sends them my way. And then we have uh, asset manager. Once we buy properties, we third party manage, we get third party management. Uh, but we have to still babysit and oversee the management because we can't, you know, you can't just give them a plan and expect them to do it perfectly. We're talking to them every week, making sure that they're getting the rents to where we want, seeing if there's any market changes, are the renovations going according to plan. So we have asset managers. And then probably next person we're bringing on is someone to help with the software company we're starting. We're creating a, a program that helps people, you know, the Excel analyzer that I've built and sell turning it into an online software so that people can analyze deals online and it'll help you through that process. So very cool. Yeah. So how long did it take you to build this team? Cause it sounds like you've got a lot of like, I mean, really important people that helped you. Like, did you have a plan in place or did you already know kind of who you have to have first or how did it all come together? <laughs> no, it just kind of all came together. I met my business partner through um, a group called a mastermind, like a high level networking group for apartment owners. And it was funny. I was like, I was the youngest guy in the room and probably at least experienced time-wise. I'd only been doing it for a year and a half. And he uh, is 50 years old and he owned about $250 million of property, and, uh, multifamily apartments in uh, Texas. And he went through kind of like a, a business partner divorce with a guy that wasn't really that great of a guy. And I had done the same thing with the business partner that I started with. And so we met and we kicked it off really well. And he liked that I was very analytical numbers guy. Uh, you know, I liked, he, he was a good mentor of mine and we decided let's buy a deal together, see how it goes. We did that. It went really well. And then we decided to start Obsidian Capital together. So nice. It's amazing. Yeah. So what's next for you? Just continuing to grow. We're, we're starting kind of a development arm of the company. We're doing a few new developments in Austin. And the software that we're building and then just continuing to buy existing apartments and and renovating them and making our investors happy with good returns. Hey guys, just want to take a quick moment and introduce you to a key member of my power team. Dylan Suter is my realtor who's been working very hard to find me amazing deals and Dylan, I'm a big proponent in working with realtors 
that are investors. And Dylan is truly an investor. Welcome, Dylan. And thank you so much for being a sponsor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I want to first thank you for having us as a sponsor. We're really grateful to be working with you and all of the support you've given us over the past couple of years. So thank you so much for that. And our focus as Elevation Realty is to focus our attention primarily on real estate investors that are looking to replace their active income with a passive income and go enjoy what they like most, such as time with the family or up at the cottage, whatever it may be. So what we do is we focus our attention on creating a plan specific for each client, whether that is something they want to have five properties in five years and be able to sit on them for 10 years and then sell them and retire on the the equity. Or if they're looking to scale their portfolio and retire in the next 12 months, we can look at doing that as well through joint ventures or Airbnb short-term rentals. We can talk through buildings, buy, renovate, refinance, single family purchases, and the list goes on. That's awesome. Now, Dylan, if people wanted to reach out and get help from you, where can they go? They can check us out online at www.elevationrealty.ca, E-L-E-V-A-T-I-O-N, realty.ca, or they can email us at info at elevationrealty.ca, Give us a call or text at 905-592-4220 or check us out at The Right Club or other meetup groups that we're usually at as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dylan. It is awesome working with you as always. And now back to the show. Awesome. All right. Really cool. I mean, I could keep asking you questions for so so many (laughs) questions, but I know that our podcast time is, is... getting a little bit short. The next part though of our podcast is actually a lightning round and I'm going to ask you a series of five questions. David, you're going to give me the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book ever? Oh, I love Rich Dad Poor Dad. Yeah. Yep. Number two, what is your favorite podcast? Favorite podcast? Well, obviously this one. Sarah Larby's (laughs) podcast. But some of my other favorites, I guess Bigger Pockets, Rod Cleef's podcast. Yep. Yep. Those are good ones for sure. I listen to those too. Number three, what do you do for fun aside from real estate? I love being out in the lake. I love boating. Yeah. Wakeboarding. Nice. And number four, if you lost all of your money and your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? I would go find a deal. Okay. All right. And number five, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend they spend it? Passively invest in a syndication with a trustworthy sponsor. All right. Awesome. So David, where can listeners find you if they wanted to reach out and know more? Uh, You can find me on Instagram, David Tupin or Real Estate Jedi. You can go to my website and just Google Obsidian Capital. That's O-B-S-I-D-I-A-N Capital and check us out. Awesome. Any final words of advice for the listeners? Yeah, I think if, you know, if I've learned anything by doing what I've done at the age of 24, I'm no different than any of you listening to this. If I could do it, you all definitely have the ability to do it. And I think it just takes some focus and hard work and, and meeting the right people. Amazing. Thanks on that note, David, for being on the show. It's a pleasure having you. And thank you for all the insights and the information that you were able to share today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons. And at the time, they all seemed very valid. But as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away. And eventually, only one reason remained. 
What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.